standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 215 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and not even a Bradford pub brimming with sexism could dent the sheer joy of England lifting that trophy on Sunday. Still beaming that football done come home. What an exhilarating reset to zero years of hurt. Come on. <laughs> Have they actually got a sign, like, you know, number of hours since workplace accident? <laughs> I hope so. I hope, like, Badil and Skinner have both got one in their houses. If it's come out, we, we have to make sure we don't let it out again. <laughs> That's it. Got to keep it now. Like, look after yeah. it. Which is why maybe women have got it. We're less likely to lose it. Yeah. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and this weekend I thought I'd gone face blind for about 10 minutes. Who didn't you recognise? I, I was in a village near here and I was in like a Tesco Express and there was a really long queue for the till so I went to the self-service machine Mm -hmm. and almost immediately encountered a problem. I was trying not to be in a rush to get her over because that's essentially me jumping the queue do you know what I mean but I was like I've got a bit of a problem and the woman behind the counter said okay and at this point two old people walk into the shop and he shouts like that a waves and I'm like I don't know who any of those people are but I sort of do a wave back Mm -hmm. and then I continue to stand there and the queue is getting longer and longer and she's like I'll be over with you in a minute and I'm like oh it's fine honestly because I can see where I would be in the queue if I'd actually joined the queue and I'm still ahead right so I'm standing there and at that point a boy of about 17 runs in really flustered and says, oh, I'm really sorry, Hannah, I'll be with you in a minute. And I thought, I have no idea who that is, <laughs> all right? So this is three people now in the shop who know who I am and I don't know who any of them are. And it's really fucking freaky. So eventually I'm standing there uh, and she comes over to me. And as she comes over to me, a guy in the till shouts down, Hannah, are you holding this queue up? Right? And I just go, what the fuck? <laughs> right? And she says, yeah, mate, that's really funny. Oh, uh, someone else was called Hannah? That's outrageous. Yes. How long it took that to occur to me, though, was incredible. I was like, why don't I recognise any of these faces? I think the amount of time it took you to work out that someone else might be called Hannah is actually more worrying than if you'd genuinely gone face blind. <laughs> <laughs> Later on, I chat about the iconic Mabel Stark rooting for the underdog and the joy of tigers with Natasha Williams-Samuels and Kasia Zaremba-Byrne, star and writer-director respectively of Tiger Lady, a new play from Dead Rabbits Theatre Company. And I speak to Rebecca Waite about her latest book, I'm Sorry You Feel That Way. Funnily enough, now we say this, also about a person called Hannah. Any more information on that, Hannah? She has a really hard time mentally at university. It, it's uncanny, actually. Big fan of mashed potatoes, apparently, as well. When did you commission Rebecca Waite to write your life story? <laughs> Does she at any point go face blind in Tesco Express? <laughs> but first, a pox on all your parties. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph and welcome to Silly Season, which could at least have the good grace to be actually silly. Yeah, we're short on silly, aren't we? We are. Do you think all the listeners know what Silly Season is, by the way? Because obviously we're journos and August was always Silly Season when it came to content because there was very little of it. 
Yeah, I think people do. Okay. Well, if not, there was a very good explanation you can find. Just go back 30 seconds and uh, and Mickey will explain it again. <laughs> Just cut out the noise of Hannah eating mushed potato while she has another breakdown. <laughs> Are you talking about me? I don't know. <laughs> I'm confused. So let's talk about monkeypox. You know, that new pandemic that we all got a bit panicked about for a bit, mm. arriving as it did on the tail of an existing pandemic. And for many of us, this second health crisis has remained in the jokey, not now monkeypox category. Little bit, yeah. Because the community it appears to be predominantly affecting is gay men. Which, for a lot of people, means they have stopped worrying, which is fine. And for a lot of people, means they've stopped caring, which is less so. Mm -hmm. Because something feeling not my problem doesn't make it not your problem. I spent months locked alone in my house because of COVID, yet more months worrying and researching and talking about it in my real life and at work. And I'm increasingly convinced I might actually be immune to it. All of which would have been little or no comfort had all my friends and family died from COVID. Feeling immune to something also doesn't mean you're not at risk. But if you are more at risk, people should tell you, right? Yeah. Oh, hello, fraught LGBT politics. Nice of you to show up. I'm no doctor, as you've probably worked out from what I've just said or what I've said (laughs) over the last five years or because I once vomited into your face when you told me about your bum trouble. True story. Again, sorry, Mick. (laughs) So if you want to know more about that side of it, the science, the medicine, absolutely do the reading. Suffice to say, monkeypox is not sexually transmitted, but it does transmit through skin-to-skin contact, which happens quite a lot while having sex. Maybe not for the Amish, but you know, I don't (laughs) think they actually listen to us. And given that around 98% of infected people are gay or bisexual men, so this is the community the disease has landed in, it seems reasonable to assume that the people most at risk from catching it are other gay and bisexual men. Pointing this out should not be seen as homophobic, in the same way that telling our olds to be especially careful because of the other pandemic isn't ageist. Agreed. And yet, and yet, saying this and writing about it is, in some quarters at least, controversial. BuzzFeed's David Mack tweeted last week, Just read the comments on this story I wrote and way absolutely wild to be accused as a gay reporter of being anti-gay for reporting on practical health advice for a virus that is currently affecting MSM in 98% of known cases, including half a dozen of my own friends. What he means by MSM there is men who have sex with men. Mm -hmm. Owen Jones, who wrote a similar piece in The Guardian, credits this response to a hangover from the stigmatisation of the AIDS crisis. And he's half right. If you've read and the band played on or seen How to Survive a Plague, you'll know that there was little unity in the gay community about how to respond to the burgeoning crisis when it arrived in the early 80s. But credit where credit is due, Jones is spot on on everything else he says in that column. Mac does not deserve abuse for sticking up for his community in the way he sees best, and neither just Jones. I mean, there are literally dozens of other things that you can have a go at him about. Normal services returned. <laughs> One more thing to add, and it's this from Ashwin Vassan, MD, PhD, New York City's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene Commissioner. Quote, 
We have a growing concern for the potentially devastating and stigmatising effects that the message around the monkeypox virus can have on these already vulnerable communities. Therefore, I write to urge you to act immediately on... Drumroll! Renaming the monkeypox virus. To which I would say, use your time better, please. I'm actually hitting my own forehead with my finger. Yeah, exactly. How is that a good use of time? I mean, I I might have sounded like I was being sarcastic when I said MD, PhD. I wasn't. I want to give him his due. He knows what the fuck he's talking about. And yet, we're in the middle of two pandemics and he's worrying about semantics. Also, I don't understand why monkeypox is you know when we were talking about covid and it came and they were saying oh the indian variant yeah absolutely change it because that's not how it worked or when they were calling it the chinese virus again absolutely change it because that's that's not how it works and it will create bigotry stigmatism racism monkeypox yeah how will changing the name help i i have absolutely no idea and genuinely i'm not sure it will when you're talking about a community i don't like that word because you know no one's a homogenous mass well exactly that yeah. i mean what has jen brister got in common with christopher biggins do you know what i mean it's like who i'm hoping <laughs> there's a real big crossover on the venn diagram <laughs> if i'm honest with you <laughs> i'll tweet her and ask her but like, what does it make community in that sense but if you were already talking about a community that's having arguments within itself about how it should deal with this don't throw another argument onto the fire or just like more confusion. Yeah, totally. Yeah. As in more fuel to the more fuel to the fire, but you knew that. And I, I said fuel really badly twice, and <laughs> then I've had enough of it now. Talking about fuel to the fire, Mickey. Okay, okay. What an intro. Now, clearly we're not big fans of the Conservative Party here on Standard Issue. If this is a surprise to you, welcome. <laughs> you must be new here. Come on in. You're gonna love my new version of Top Cat. Maybe they're Amish. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope we've got a, a strong Amish listener group. Definitely. The Amish are coming. Hey, you Amish, write in, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> and seriously, the Tories do make it really easy to have a pop, don't they? With bad behaviour on and off the political pitch. But what of, and I say this in sarcastic quote marks and with a heavy heart, the opposition. What became of the Lightly Lads? Hmm? Whatever happened to the Labour Party? Do former Labour voters dream of Gordon Brown? It's Gordon Brown and an electric sheep. That's my question. <laughs> but right now, even with a Tory party that's eating its own tail, vomiting it out, then going in for seconds, we've got an opposition so weak it couldn't punch its way out of a wet paper bag. I'm hearing a lot of, at least all this means the Tory party is screwed in the next general election. And I'd really, truly, wholeheartedly love that to be true. But what is it that Labour are offering? I find that as tricky to answer as a Labour MP faced with the question, what is a woman? Mm. On a very basic level, it seems these days that the Labour Party tagline is simply, not the Tories, <laughs> which on the surface is great. The Tory party is awful. Not Tory is a starting message a lot of us can get behind. But how? Historically, Labour is the party of the working class, the party of the trade unions, the party that stands for the greater good over individual gain. But... The red wall fell at the last election, not because the working class people who live and vote there are stupid bigots, as was reported by some of the left wing press, a lot of the left wing press, but because Labour is now seen as London and identity centric rather than focusing on jobs and the economy. 
Labour's Party of the Union's credentials are currently in tatters, with little to no formal support of the RMT strikes and, in fact, Keir Starmer's sacking of Shadow Minister Sam Tarry for making media appearances on a rail workers' picket line. I'm sorry, what now? And forget the greater good, individual identity is seemingly key to Labour's current stance. A floundering Labour means that the Conservative Party is not being held to proper account for the shit fuckery atop dick splashery it's dealing mm. out to the country. As it stands, the brutal cost of living crisis is being tackled by the likes of Marcus Rashford, Martin Lewis and Jack Monroe, rather than the actual opposition. Mm. And look, Starmer had to come in and do things differently from Corbyn. No two ways about it. But he now seems more focused on demonstrating he's different to Corbyn than actually making a difference, than standing by his principles, including two of his key commitments on being elected. One, to strengthen workers' rights and trade unions. Hmm. And two, to keep public services in public hands. To be honest, I'd chuck in three, be effective opposition to the Tories as well. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's now the Not the Tory Party led by Not Jeremy Corbyn. That's it. That's exactly it. Starmer's approach reminds me of a time a dear friend, when asked about the Smiths, said there was one song she really liked. She meant How Soon Is Now, but she panicked and shouted, When is it happening? (laughs) You get the feeling he knows what he should be doing, but it's just not coming out right. And he needs to get it right. With the Tory Party in chaos... This is the time for Labour to remember its values, to state its case and to get off the fucking fence. To paraphrase Alexander Hamilton via Lin-Manuel Miranda, if you stand for nothing, Starmer, what will you fall for? Yeah, Aaron Burr's not a bad comparison, is it? He was a lawyer as well, wasn't he? Yeah, like great rhetoric, but what are you saying? I don't know. I did see it the weekend. There seems to have been a shift in which now a lot of middle-class commentaria are saying oh you know labor have drifted from the working class and i'm like fuck me mate working class journalists have been saying this since the mid 90s mm-hmm. they've been saying it since tony blair yeah, totally. and now it's only a thing because middle class people are saying it which makes you part of the fucking problem <laughs> i am one of those people who sees the labor party as too london centric and too individualistic when we're supposed to be based on the the good of all mm-hmm. is supposed to be the Labour Party. We're not doing that, or they're not doing that. I don't consider myself we. When I talk about the Labour Party at the minute. It's hard, isn't it? I think having been a Labour voter all of my life, I've not ever not voted for Labour. I have spoiled my paper. Mm. And if I was in a constituency where it was a, a sort of them or the Tory party and it was tight, I would absolutely still vote Labour because not Tory is kind of key to me. It's very mm. key to me. But if it's not something that's a clincher, I'm going to spoil my paper because I, I yeah. don't know what they're standing for anymore. I spoiled my paper in the lo- local county council election by writing, could you not found someone who actually lived here um, on the top of it? <laughs> did you also draw a cock and balls, Hannah? <laughs> no, I did that on the police commissioner one. <laughs> my local county councillor, who is a Labour stalwart and uh, you know very active member of the Labour Party and very, very, very active on Twitter, it, like tweets all the time about the issues that matter to her, which are LGBT issues, the environment, and all of these things are important and I'm glad that she's doing it. Definitely. But yeah. she never tweets about the community that she's supposed to be representing and I live in the poorest community in Cambridge. 
people will recognise less local concerns, but at the same time, you have voted someone in to look after your local concerns. Mm. So if you just ignore those, you're not doing your job. You're not doing what you were voted in for. And that's exactly what's happened to Labour in the Red Wall constituencies. Yeah. Yeah. So with all of this in mind, Mickey, are you ready for some good news? Yes, please, Hannah. First thing to say is Jen's on holiday. No, that's not the good news. (laughs) But it will go some way to explaining why there's no Jenny off the blocks this week. Still not the good news. Okay, good. But, and here is some good news that you will already know. England won Euro 22. Woo-woo! It's done. Come home. It's done. I'm on my table. I'm doing (laughs) laps. Come on. So what to do? Oh, hang on. Here comes some more good news. I found someone else to cover it. Someone who has been on this very podcast before chatting about the old kickball. Alex Scott. No. Jill Scott. No. Ennio Luco. No. Oh. Nah, mate. It's me. Uh, uh, Would have been my next guest, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure you'll all remember what a great job I did of covering the FA Vars when I learned who Lionel Messi was. So we'll all agree that I was the obvious choice. Even though I taught you who Lionel Messi was, you are the obvious choice. Exactly. (laughs) Oh yes, yesterday the Lionesses managed to avoid the particularly gruesome gut churn that comes with a penalty shootout by beating Germany 2-1 in extra time. Ella Toon scored what I believe... Oh wait a minute, you said that wrong. It's Ella Toon! (laughs) Come on now. Yeah, so she scored what I believe is called, because I like to use the technical terms, a fuck me. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And Chloe Kelly, a fuck yeah, in front of 87,000 people at Wembley. I'm 100% confident Jem would like me to say something here about the sort of people who say, nobody watches women's football though, and ask them how they like them apples. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, football had come home and found that we had the kettle on. And by that, I mean everybody was absolutely delighted. Mm-hmm. Players, fans, commentators, us, our Twitter mm-hmm. followers. In fact, mm-hmm. they were so excited, we got put on the naughty step by Twitter <laughs> for a bit for tweeting too much. Calm it the fuck down, ladies. Women, eh? <sighs> because the thing about this good news is, it keeps giving. It's great for the team. Indeed, in terms of morale, it's good for all England teams. It's good for fans. It's good for football. It's really fucking good for women's football. Mm -hmm. It's good for female commentators. It's good for women. Now, come on, Hannah. How do you justify that last one? I'm going to hand over to author and friend of the podcast, Lucy Ward, who tweeted the already world-famous photograph of Kelly's top-off goal celebration for which she received a yellow card and actually fair dues. And Lucy added this, quote, This image of a woman shirtless in a sports bra is hugely significant. This is a woman's body, not for sex or show, just for the sheer joy of what she can do and the power and skill she has. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Yep. And from now on, we'll always be recording the Bush Telegraph with just a sports bra on. Yep. Playing the old kickball. I was thinking, Mick, because we were in a good mood... We could spread the love a bit because we are particularly in a good mood with our patrons this week, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Well done, our patrons. And I'm going to give a little special mention to Pauline Mabley. Thank you, Pauline. Kate Francis. Thank you, Kate. Jennifer Pope. Thank you, Jennifer. Jen Simpson. Thanks, Jen. Cass Winlow. Mags Lahane. And Marie, who is 
a mystery when it comes to surnames, but thank you so much for subscribing to our Patreon. And if you want to join in the fun of supporting us, of course you do. You can just go to patreon.com forward slash standard issue. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're going to be offering them some stuff soon, patrons, aren't we? Oh, keep an eye out. Because, you know, imagine if we funded women doing things. I think the football's <laughs> just shown us how wonderful that can be. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where screaming pillows are mandatory. Except, not this week. What the fuck? I know, that's right. Butter my bum and call me a scone. I've got a good news sexism of the week for you. Well, mostly. The world's not quite spun off its axis. In June 2012, the UK signed the Istanbul Convention, a 2011 European landmark treaty to end violence against women. This important piece of legislation offers protections to women across Europe, setting out minimum standards which European countries should adhere to in law to prevent and combat domestic abuse and violence against women. Hooray! Thing is, signing it didn't bring it into play. Only a government that has ratified the treaty is bound by its obligations, and the UK has been dragging its heels on ratification for the past decade. Last week, though, the UK ratified the Istanbul Convention, which is great news. Mm. But Although, is it, Mickey, now I'm starting to doubt it. <laughs> uh, because we're ruled by the Tories, it does, of course, come with a side serving of sloppy yellow shit. And the UK no! government... <laughs> and some of Hannah's vomit. You are so definitely editing this because I can't hear that again. <laughs> I really can't. <laughs> And the UK government has decided to reserve Article 59 of the Convention, which requires states to grant residence to survivors whose immigration status depends on an abusive partner. It's a serious and particularly cruel reservation, given migrant women are also offered no recourse to public funds under the Domestic Abuse Bill, and almost every police force in England and Wales, that's almost every police force, has reported migrant victims of abuse to immigration officials. This in turn means migrant women facing domestic violence tend to stay in those relationships for fear of deportation should they report that violence. Yeah, I hope you hadn't smugly packed that screaming pillow somewhere you couldn't easily reach. The government says it's reserved Article 59 because the matter is under review pending the conclusion and evaluation of a short-term pilot of the Support for Migrant Women scheme, Although how the operation of that clashes with the principle behind Article 59 isn't at all clear. In a letter to the UK's safeguarding minister, Amanda Soloway, Scotland's equalities minister, Christina McKelvey, and Welsh social justice minister, Jane Hutt, co-write, quote, a key element of the Istanbul Convention is the obligation it places on states to implement its provisions without discrimination on any grounds, and we urge you to take this obligation seriously. Here, here. Yeah, agreed. Can never have anything just nice, can we? We can't because you say repulsive stuff. Do you want me to say it again? No. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Natisha Williams Samuels and Kasha Zaremba Byrne, star and writer director, respectively, of Tiger Lady, a new play from Dead Rabbits Theatre Company, about one of my very favourite historical figures, Mabel Stark. Natisha, hello. Hello. Kasha, hello. Hello. Now then, there's a clue in the title, Tiger Lady, but. 
Kasha, could you tell us about Mabel Stark and why you were inspired to write about her? It was a very strange kind of story of discovering Mabel uh, herself because it's kind of forgotten, completely forgotten. There's quite a lot of things about circus at the moment and films, but there was not many women. And suddenly I, I kind of encountered this book and then started to research on the internet and through different kind of memoirs. And she was kind of popular for about 10, 15 years. Very, very kind of like a star from nowhere. In films, uh, kind of riding uh, with James Dean, uh, all the kind of movies, uh, she was everywhere. And then suddenly everything stopped. And I thought, um, kind of why, why women get kind of famous and then suddenly forgotten? Mm. And in that time, of course, and even now it is that uh, once you pass 35 <laughs> you yes. have no use I suppose well we're perceived to have no use but you know we definitely do <laughs> <laughs> exactly I mean we, we were perceived like that I think that changes now but I thought is that is that why she was famous and then not uh, but she was very active with tigers and with training till her 80s and she was even on whose line uh, is it or whose line is it anyway in 1960s. And people couldn't guess that she was a former tiger tamer. Mm -hmm. And she was kind of quite bossy, um, kind of tiny little lady. And I thought uh, there is more to the story and memoirs don't tell you much. It's all kind of gloss uh, uh, and not much kind of substance. And I thought, okay, let's dig in and let's see. And that's, in a way, that's, that's what my work is about. It's kind of not just about women, but it's about underdog and finding a story, the true story behind, behind the kind of the gloss. Just a little recap for our listeners in case they haven't heard of Mabel. Also, what have you been doing? You should read about Mabel Stark. In the 1910s and 1920s, circus was the most popular form of entertainment in North America. And Stark made her name in this man's world as the greatest female tiger trainer in history. The centering finale act for the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. And what she was doing with the big cats was this incredible show of power in an age where it was only recently that women had even got the right to vote. So, Natisha, what an incredible, powerful and complicated character to inhabit. What's it like being Mabel Stark? Tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I think it's a world that I feel like her boots can never be filled. I mean, she's absolutely insane. It's a lot of fun, you know, just kind of stepping out of your comfort zone and going to the the extremes and then kind of toning it down a little bit. And I've got to actually play and then bring a little bit of myself to the role, especially because, as you said, it was such a male-dominated society that she used to live in. And now it's like, you know, women are strong. It's nice to have, like, a strong woman as a lead. And that's why I really want to, you know, do it justice. And hopefully in Edinburgh Fringe, everyone will see that I do it justice. <laughs> She was properly a tough cookie, wasn't she? Not one to give up in the face of adversity. Like brimming with courage, perseverance, stubbornness. And you could see it on her body. She was covered in these scars, but also I think emotionally she was scarred as well. Is that something that you bring out in the play? Yeah, I would say so because we had the pleasure of obviously devising it together and we were able to 
you know, show different qualities of her. And it is tough, but I do feel like we do have different aspects of her, the different personalities where she, you know, goes through the sadness. But then it's nice that the ensemble also bring her back on track. So, yeah, in the play, we do kind of, you know, play on the different sides of Mabel and how she is strong, but at the same time, she did have that little, you know, soft side that not many people saw. Mm. So, um, certain characters bring out different aspects of her. So, yeah, you'll see that in the play as well. That's what I found that there was something that she didn't want to talk about, and without kind of spoiling the the show, <laughs> the outcome of the show, we kind of play on her being old lady looking at her memories. And you know, like sometimes people who are very proud of their life, they just say about the good things that happens in their life. Mm-hmm. And they don't say about the, the, the kind of the more, more vulnerable side of themselves, like Natisha said. And that's what we explore. So to go underneath that and what really happened in that world. It is not just about success and what success does to us, but also what really matters in life when you're looking back at it. Mm-hmm. So you hinted at it earlier and you've just hinted at it again. People in the circus, performers in general, I am looking at you two as well, aren't shy of embellishing the truth in pursuit of a good story. How hard was it to research, Mabel? I mean, the book, the main book, um, I think it's uh, R. Hughes. um, um, Oh, Robert Hoff, The Last Confession of Mabel Stark. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's very good. But it's so rich, you can't make a show in one hour. So we were trying to put things in. And, and of course, when you're making a show and you're taking stuff from, from literature or from other research, mm, that's not quite true. You know, you have to make a show. So you change slightly something, some things are more important. But also it's about the group of people that, that create the show. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what very, is very important for me, that everybody brings mm, what is for them, what they connect to in the story and how we can make it maybe kind of not on the on the nail but kind of we try to find the poetry and we're trying to find something that sometimes if you try to make the right story it just escapes the guys created a band as well um with kind of country music and through that as well through the kind of ensemble feel and lots of fun lots of slapstick the seriousness of the story comes through kind of in in kind of gentle touches rather than saying something oh this is a tragic story yeah yeah so Natisha obviously you're playing Mabel but does does Mabel sort of represent more than just Mabel Stark yeah I think it just it's just nice to also have like a strong woman you know talking about her life because a lot of women we don't get the chance to have a say you know back in the day she didn't get a chance to have a say about anything so it's more you know having the confidence and the right to be on stage this is my story and mm-hmm. you guys will listen to it regardless of whether I'm maybe sugarcoating some things it's nice to actually just to show that you know I am a woman this is my story this is what I'm doing and hopefully influence other women like I feel empowered it's nice to see you know a strong lead having the chance to actually grab the show you know by the balls, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get some balls in there. Amazing. She'd, she'd have bloody loved that. She'd have loved it. I love the circus. I think that's become quite clear. Though I've got to say, I'm very pleased that the use of wild animals in travelling circuses is banned in the UK. Although, only since January 2020. Only found that out today. Madness. But... Mabel had a really special relationship with all of her tigers, but one tiger in particular, and that was Rajar. Are we going to see Rajar in the show? 
they're both giving me little mysterious faces, listeners. <laughs> I, I, I will show you something. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to spoil any, but there you go. Oh, oh, hello. Someone else has joined the call. Hello, Raja. I'd love to talk to you, but we don't have men on the show. <laughs> that was beautiful. There's a really beautiful tiger's head looking at me. <laughs> Yes, um, of course. Of course, we play with um, the second main character, who is Raja, in a way, and about the kind of triangle relationship there is between Mabel, Raja, and Artruni, who was uh, who was her husband, a fifth husband. She powered through them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she she found a way to get herself up through men <laughs> over the men. I was going to say there is a love story in there, isn't there? Well, to Raja and Art was the human love of her life I think yeah there is and it's a it's a really funny relationship because you know Raja is an animal but the love she has for the animal is as if he was her firstborn child Mm -hmm. and then with art it's just such a different kind of love that they share so it's nice to you know have to explore that and yeah I I mean I don't want to spoil anything but when you see it it's really different the times were so different, um, the way people treated each other, the way they treated animals, but also the way they were fascinated uh, by the exotic animals and by the acts in yeah. a circus. Yeah. The things that they were doing, it just, it just um, I think it's just terrible how the kind of exoticness about women, about uh, other people uh, uh, kind of came through. and. Even in the book, there is a little bit about that. And I kind of made sure that we keep away from that kind of exoticness from the kind of 1920s and 30s that is just really bad and inhumane and terrible. So in a way, it is changed to the times that we live in. You know, um, there's a lot of (laughs) strangeness uh, around uh, our world now as well, but in a way... Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> so drastic. You know, even what the what Raja's act was uh, in reality, I don't know if you know. It was a little bit saucy, wasn't it? They used to play yeah, off. It was yeah, a little bit yeah. salacious. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So, so, so that was kind of then ex- acceptable. Whereas now, um, like, I don't want to go there. Uh, you know, it's 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 a family show. <laughs> Let's say that. <laughs> Just, just for, in case listeners are wondering, there is no tiger sex in this show. No, no, no like, <laughs> adamant about that. I wondered because obviously, as we've touched on, Tiger Lady isn't just about Mabel Stark. And I would like to know what, apart from learning about this beautiful, forgotten, fierce Wonder Woman, you would like people to take away from the play. I'm going to start with you, Tisha. Do you know what I would taken away from this play? I hope like everybody can come out and just as a woman as well just you know be strong stay strong we should be heard and we shouldn't back down you know age is just a number but we're still as strong as we always was you know a lot of the times like I know when you know people get older it's like oh they're not able to do things as they usually would but it's like do you know what that's okay but there's still other things you can do and I, I hope that people can take away you know from the show like don't back down always persevere I mean you know you may not get it in the the first instance but you know if you keep trying one door closes another door opens so I'm an advocate of just spreading like positivity having courage and seeing where it takes you because I mean if you don't ask you don't get and you'll never know and I suppose I suppose for me 
as well what what Natisha said, but also there is this thing about um, I perhaps from my perspective being um, a few decades uh, uh, older is that things turn sometimes in life on the smallest of things mm-hmm. and we can't predict what will be our life so it's about uh, being in the moment and and taking it as as it comes but not 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 being too kind of you know you never know what will happen tomorrow so so you better stay <laughs> stay alert and and uh, enjoy what you have at the moment so are you both a little bit like mabel are you big fans of saying yes to opportunities yeah yeah, I would think so. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's very rare that I say no. And if I do say no, there's a, a really good reason why. But I'm very much, I think it's, I think it was Kasha. I mean, um, she was one who taught us about yes and and always saying yes. And, you know, whether it's, you know, improvising or just in life, just, you know, try it. And I'm a big advocate. I won't knock it to, you know, if I, till I try it. So I will always try something. And if it's not for me, it's not for me. But at least I can hold my hands up and say, hey, do you know what? I tried that. wasn't for me. You know, now I can move on to the next thing. So, yeah, I'm very, you know, big on yes and. Do you reckon you could handle 20 Tigers in the ring? Yes. <laughs> and more. here they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, potentially, you never know. With the right training, I mean, you know, yeah, why not? Do you know what? It's made me want a pet just in general because I don't have any. I would love, I would actually love a tiger cub. They are so cute when they're tiny. Cats are mini tigers. Can absolutely assure you of that. Get yourself a cat. Train it to jump through hoops. It'll just look at the hoop and fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we use the audience um, as tigers. Arr. So they have to they have to say yes to us. I mean, we kind of uh, we kind of charm them. So they say, okay, let, let's go, and they come to the to the stage, and they work with us. I mean, uh, Natisha is the kind of the leader of the whole <laughs> tiger yeah. movement on stage. So there's oh, a big act that. with nine nine tigers all together. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's amazing. So, listeners, Tiger Lady is at the Edinburgh Fringe from August the third to August the 29th. You're at the Pleasance Courtyard, right? Pleasance Hall great venue pleasance above now tiger lady was supposed to open at the sadly cancelled vault festival earlier this year and i was very very disappointed will there be a tour after the fringe run that's what we are thinking about uh, in springtime so we are contacting uh, different kind of producers and different people to try to organize that we kind of cautious a little bit because uh, we w- we came to uh, edinburgh in 2019 we got amazing tour and then everything was cancelled. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm slightly afraid. I'm slightly afraid um, this summer also, but uh, I hope people are so hungry <laughs> for for theatre and for fun and for being together. And hopefully, it will be too hot, <laughs> even in Edinburgh. <laughs> and you get to be tigers. Come on! <laughs> <laughs> Where can people keep an eye on you on the socials to find out more about what dead rabbits are up to and whether Tiger Lady goes on tour? Our Twitter, uh, which is uh, Dead Rabbits TC. We also have Instagram. Teach, do you remember uh, the Instagram? So the Instagram is Dead Rabbits Theatre, and the TikTok is also Dead Rabbits. So. And then there is a website, uh, the Drabitz Theatre, and all the information are there as well. Great stuff. Thank you both so, so much for chatting with me. Thank you. Thank you for having no, us. It's been a pleasure.
Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by author Rebecca Waite. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Your new book, I'm Sorry You Feel That Way, I read at the weekend. Actually, I listened to it on audiobook. I always can tell when I'm really loving it on audiobook, when I'm doing something else, and in this case, it was washing up. And then I found myself just standing with my hands in the water, listening. This is your fourth book, and I quite often speak to new writers, and they're in that excitement and the nerves and, and all of that. And I was wondering, book four, what's it like at this stage? Does it become quite run of the mill or is it always terribly exciting when you have your new book out? I think it's quite nice for me in some ways that it's my fourth novel because I've, I've sort of shaken down a bit. I'm used to the world of publishing. I'm quite clear in my expectations. I'm not overawed by things in the way I was because I started when I was very young, actually. My first novel I think I wrote when I was 22, 23, and then I think it came out when I was 25. The whole thing was exciting, but I just felt very out of place and nervous and I felt very young. And yeah, I'm quite overawed by everything. And now I'm just quite relaxed and I can sort of enjoy it for what it is. I don't get as angsty about sales. I think, well, there's a lot of things that aren't out of, aren't in my control. So mm. if it sells well, great. If it doesn't, well, I've sort of done my best. I've done my bit. And I think also it's helped that I haven't been wildly successful. <laughs> my last book sold much better, Our Fathers. But my previous two books were fairly, I think, modest is the euphemistic term my agent would use about the sales <laughs> for my first two. And I, I think that that's kept me with quite healthy expectations and I've had a really great run of reviews for this most recent book. And that's been really, really nice because I went in with sort of fairly low. If I get good coverage, great. If I don't, well, I'm really pleased with this book. I think it's my best. I feel very proud of it. Mm-hmm. So let's just see what happens. And so I think in some ways, a lot of writers get very successful with their debut because there's a lot of buzz about debuts. Generally, it's quite exciting. It's sort of quite a thing in the publishing world mm-hmm. and um, in book selling as well, because you can create a bit more hype about it. Obviously, it would have been nice if I'd had a wildly successful debut, but I really didn't. And I think that's made my career feel a bit more sustainable now. Like I've been able to really write without feeling like people are watching me because really nobody is watching me yeah. and write what I want mm-hmm. to write without getting too anxious about how something's going to land or where it's going to be placed. And I think that has resulted in this most recent book. I feel like I've done what I wanted to do and I'm really happy with it. So in some ways, I think it's it's nice that I've been in publishing for quite a long time now. And it's also nice that I feel like my career has been slowly building quite a slow burn yeah. rather than yeah. a, a blaze from the start. And, and yeah, that has been how I've worked, not through any careful strategy or plan but just because that's the way it's worked out for me and I have had that anxiety particularly between my second and third novels where I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to place my third novel was I going to be published again Mm. and and I did have a a quite a miserable period when I'd written the book I thought it was good um, but I wasn't sure if I'd be able to actually publish it but then I was picked up by my current publisher Riverrun and actually it was Waterstone's book of the month It, it sold really well it was the Guardian book of the year and that had been off the back of two pretty poorly selling previous novels Mm. that had good reviews but really didn't take off so it was very much nowhere near the mainstream my most recent novel is again doing better still so far as I can tell at the moment and I wish I could go back and tell my younger self who was really much like well if it doesn't work out the first time then you've had your chance and and you know I, I tried to be philosophical about it as well when my first two books didn't sell that well I kept saying well you know you're really lucky to even publish at all that's what you wanted and you keep moving the goalposts but I think I will always keep moving the goalposts because I will always want to be successful. But my sense of what's successful will continue to change, I think, as everyone's does. Can you give us a little pricey of your latest novel? 
Yeah, absolutely. It focuses on two twin sisters, Alice and Hannah, and they're pretty different um, in temperament. Alice is sort of this, to use a cliche, sort of good girl. She's kind of been brought up to be that way, whereas Hannah's very rebellious. Um, And again, a lot of it is to do with how they've been sort of socialised by their controlling, domineering mother, Celia. And it's essentially a book about a dysfunctional family, a very dysfunctional family, but in particular focused on this toxic mother-daughter relationship and how that affects these two twins, their relationship with each other and how their lives play out as they grow up and go into their 20s and then eventually their 30s and how that really complicated Mm -hmm. relationship with their mother affects their adult relationships as well. A couple of years ago, I went to see... uh... True West, Sam Shepard's play, he said, when you're talking about two siblings, Avon and Raoul, they're just two sides of your own personality that butt up against each other. So tell me, how much are you Hannah? How much are you Alice? (laughs) That's a really interesting question. And I I often think, in some senses, every character a writer writes is kind of some facet of themselves, because we're only ever drawing on our own experience. You're always just trapped inside your own skull. You can't access other people's consciousness. You can only make it a sort of imaginative leaps but that will always be based on your own way of looking at the world so you're kind of making inferences but essentially everything you write is autobiography to some degree even if it's sort of imaginative autobiography Mm. but I would say that I am probably a blended version of Alice and Hannah Alice is very socially anxious very eager to please I would say that was me as a teenager and in my early 20s I like to think I've become a lot more assertive now and become more Hannah I think Hannah has quite a sharp, dry sense of humour, which is more my sense of humour. Alice is very, very gentle. I think I could probably use being a bit more gentle sometimes in my interactions like Alice. So I think that the best possible personality would be a combination of the of two. The two yeah. I don't think, I'm not saying that's fine. I have got the best <laughs> here possible I personality. I don't think I've necessarily got the best facets from both of them. Now, talking of parents, I'm going to start with Celia because how you approach this book, which I have, I have to say... Deals with some pretty meaty issues, but it's also very funny. So, well done. You come to these three women, basically. They lead certain chapters. And how you deal with Celia is, I get to points in this where I just think, oh, I just want to kill her when I read this book. I hate her. And then she'll have a chapter. And then I remember that she has her own cross to bear. And actually... That's kind of similar to how I feel about my own mother sometimes. She isn't Celia. It's a very interesting relationship, that mother-daughter one. I mean, Celia is a nightmare mother in mm. many ways. I wanted to, I started very, in fact, the first part of the novel I had, was that, it was actually a short story that I was working on originally, but I always get carried away with short stories because I just want to expand. And it was a short story focused on Celia as a child, um, her experience, her, it's not really a spoiler to say, um, her sister develops um, schizophrenia and she's very very ill and that affects Celia's childhood experience she's already the least favored child and then all her parents attention of course goes on helping her sister Katie who's very unwell and that exacerbates an already existing favoritism within Mm. the family and I wanted to start with Celia's childhood experience because I think a lot of her really really unpleasant behavior towards her own daughters is the result of this child sort of she's become frozen in time Mm. I think so she's got this child self within her who's just desperate for love and attention and is just demanding these things all the time so that's the cry of her life that's always within her is you know why don't you love me why can't you give me what I need and so she's in some ways she's doing that terrible 
parental thing of wanting to be parented by her own children, mm. trying to get that love that she didn't get as a child from her daughters, which is totally fatal to any kind of healthy mother-daughter relationship. But I do feel I, I, I've had a lot of comments from readers that Celia is just kind of just awful. You want to kill her. She's unbearable. And I definitely see that. And I wanted her to be unpleasant. I didn't want her to be likable. Mm. Um, that terrible phrase. Um, but I do have quite a soft spot for myself in some ways. And I think that's partly because she's not my mother. And <laughs> partly because I think there's this wounded child and I feel mm. desperately sorry for people who have received that kind of wound in childhood that that feeling of not being loved which is very hard to overcome I think as an adult if you haven't been given love you need as a child then you can get sort of fixed in time and she doesn't have the awareness as a as a character either she says a, doesn't have any self-awareness to be able to address that so she's if you knew if she was a real person you be saying maybe she'd benefit from some counselling perhaps and that would be revelatory took the words out of my mouth because it's also about women of a certain generation it's about women who didn't see that as an option didn't see maybe you know finding themselves as a person before getting married as an option you know all of those things which I mean like I say it's my my mum can be emotionally manipulative she's not Celia but she she can be because I think those were the tools that women were equipped with at the point that they were that that they were growing up. Yeah, yeah. I think she's fascinating, Celia. Thank you. I, I, I she's the character that I enjoyed writing the most. Strangely, because I think she's possibly not the most enjoyable one to spend time with on the page. But I think I think it's an interesting thing for a writer to do it sort of really held my own attention whilst I was writing to to walk that tightrope between this is a very unpleasant and destructive woman mm. and she's I think she's quite unforgivable in how she treats her daughters and the damage that she does to them so I don't think giving her a, a sad backstory lets her off the hook for that and and that's true of most people I think mm. who behave in a very destructive damaging way for the people around them that there is damage done to them and it's not an excuse but I think that context is also quite important that no one wakes up one day and says I'm going to be a terrible mother I've yeah. decided to be a terrible mother she is deeply damaged herself and, and she lacks the awareness of that and I've known Celia's in real life and generally part of that tragedy is that they lack the self-awareness to see that the problem lies with them, actually. And it's not that everyone around them is continually failing to understand them, persecuting them, refusing to love them in the way that they deserve. Mm. It's that they're creating these destructive patterns. But then if you can't recognise that, then you can't address it. So you're sort of trapped in that cycle forever. Yeah. That's very sad yeah. for everyone. She's a perfect example of the expression that I use a lot, which is if you wake up in the morning and you meet an arsehole, you've met an arsehole. If all you meet all day are arseholes, then you are an arsehole. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> the problem is with you. The point that I found really interesting and the point that struck home most with me when I was reading this is that one of the girls slash women... Alice and Hannah goes to university and has a mental health crisis. I think we can probably just leave it at that, which actually really struck home with me because I, I'm called Hannah. I, I love mashed potatoes and I had an absolutely <laughs> terrible time at university. And I think it's something we don't talk about a lot. A couple of years ago when we were still an online magazine, somebody wrote a piece for us about making children think that university should be the best time of their life yes. puts an unreasonable pressure on them because when you're not mm. having the best time of your life at university and everyone is saying to you this is the best time of your life and around you people seem to be going oh, I'm having the best time of my life it adds to that pressure and it yeah other Hannah's experience goes 
much further than mine went. But yeah, I found university to be unbelievably bleak and terrible. And I didn't get out of bed for about two months. And then I came home and dropped out. And one of the most interesting things is there was no support there at all. None. Not from the university, not from the doctor, not even from my parents. Because I think the different parts of your personality that come into play in this, it confirms what they already think about you. So, for example, if your family thinks you're a bit melodramatic and you ring them up and say, they just think it's melodrama. And when your teachers think you're a bit lazy, your I cannot literally get out of bed to them just sounds like, God, she's so idle. And so I wondered, was there a point you were trying to make in this? Because I know that you have had your own trials when it comes to 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 mental health and it was around the same age interestingly Mm. yeah yeah there's lots of things that that you just said that I think are really interesting and that I also have views (laughs) on um and one of the things I wanted to comment on first was that this idea that university should be the best time of your life which I do think is a really big problem and I teach in a secondary school and one of my sixth form students was saying towards the end of term actually um she's someone who'll be going to university in September and she was saying "I'm, I'm really nervous about it because I feel like there's this expectation that it's going to be the time of my life mm. and I'm not looking forward to it and I, I don't know how to you know make sure that I have a good time and and it's just it it's not right that we're sending them off with already that idea that if you're not having the most fun it is possible yeah. for a human being to have <laughs> during those three years yeah. then you failed you failed and you've missed your chance to make those lifelong friendships and to discover yeah. who you are as a person yeah. and to discover what career you want to do in passion it's just it's a lot to put on three years when there's a lot of randomness involved you know you pick a university you might have visited but you don't have any sense really of what it will be like it's a bit of a um, a lottery who you end up with on your corridor in your flat and so on whether you find like-minded people whether you've picked the right course you haven't done it yet so you don't know so I totally agree I think it's really damaging to put so much pressure on university and actually my husband is someone who had a horrible time at university and and still now he says it makes him feel sad when he hears people reminiscing about the university days because he still feels like that was something that he kind of he did it wrong he didn't enjoy it he's um he's from Lancashire he's working class background he went to Oxford and he just said he felt totally out of depth he's yeah. very shy as well and he said he never found his feet and and really just didn't have a good time and and felt this pressure to kind of look like he was having a good time the whole time and and he he's kind of over it now in a sense but it's still a sort of a source of sadness and I think that's true of so many people yeah I, I have no friends from university none I think there's a sort of cultural myth that that's rare but that's not rare at all that's quite common and even people who leave university with a big group of friends often mm. you then drift throughout your 20s and 30s um so that was one thing that huge sort of cultural pressure that we put on young people who do go to university that you are going to have the best time. And yeah. if you don't have the best time, then you failed. Um, and then the other thing, sort of talking about mental health and the idea of mental health at university, I uh, played a blinder and had my mental health crisis just before going to university. Uh-huh. Sort of. <laughs> so I... Um, With hindsight, I was... quite wise, actually. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done me. So I had a breakdown, I guess I would describe it, in my last year of school, actually going into my last year of school. Um, I just turned 18, I think it was in February. And it, it felt at the time like it was very very much overnight sort of total collapse but you know with hindsight I can see the way it had been building Mm. over quite a few months because I was putting a lot of pressure on myself I was starting to get very very anxious and I was outwardly very happy very successful academically and had lots of friends and you know outwardly everything was going great and then I think it was quite quite perplexing again to me as well actually but also to my teachers and my parents when I suddenly had this 
total collapse and I was having panic attacks suddenly, which I'd never had before. I was crying all the time, missed quite a bit of school, couldn't get out of bed, um, didn't take my mock A-levels and then sort of gradually eased back into school. And But in the end, you know, I took my A-levels having not done any revision really and, and I was really someone who worked very hard before I got very depressed mm. and my school were really great actually they and they arranged for me to take my exams in a separate room in the end I was going to have uh, I think they call it an igratat where you're too ill to take the exams oh, okay but at, at the last minute I did manage to take my exams which I'm really glad about and I did go to university I had a year out to sort of recover and mm. do other things and just kind of get a bit of my perspective back so I've gone a bit loopy and I was on a lot of antidepressants very high dose of antidepressants and actually by the time I went to university I was pretty much recovered I was back on an even keel and I think actually that was sort of my friend when it came to enjoying university because I'd set the bar pretty low by that point I thought <laughs> if I can just you know get through the first term let's see if I can get through the first term yeah. um, and then I'll see if I can get through the second term and so on and actually I did really enjoy university I'm one of those people that did enjoy it but I think it really, really helped. And possibly one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much was because I'd totally taken that pressure off because I'd had such a bad time beforehand and I had very low expectations. I thought, let's just see if I can cope with a bit of university. I'll just, I'll dip my toe in the water of university. And I think I would, again, as someone who was putting a lot of pressure on myself before I totally collapsed, I think I would have been definitely one of those people who didn't enjoy university because yeah. my expectations were very high and I took a while to settle in as well I, I'm, I don't think I seem it to people I know but I'm quite shy at first and it took me a while to find my little group of friends and and I definitely would have been a lot more panicked about that if I hadn't just by that point been focused on let's see if I can do a second mm. week here <laughs> let's see if I can do a third week here so yes that's quite a long answer to your question no it's, it's interesting um, mm. the the third aspect I think is mental health support at university and I think from my sense of how my friends got on and, and some of my information is pretty out of date now. I'm 34. I'm 34. I was about to say I was about to claim to be 33, <laughs> but I'm not. Um, so this is sort of based on my experience and my friend's experience. It seemed to vary wildly from university to university. And um, I was at Oxford and, and that added an extra level of inconsistency I think it varied a lot from college, college to college, college yeah. and I had really good support there was a I suffer from insomnia I always have done and it flares up every now and again and sort of you know proper hardcore insomnia where you don't sleep for days and I had quite a bad flare up in my first year and my tutors were actually really really understanding and supportive of me and I think that is not everyone's experience across different colleges and I also to help with my panic attacks, I finally got, um, I got referred to the university counselling services. And actually that was, I had CBT there and it was the best CBT I've ever had. I've had quite a bit more CBT since then. I had some before and actually I had a brilliant psychologist that was provided through my university and I got really, really lucky. So I would say I actually had very good support at university, but that was very much not the experience of everyone around me, even at the same university mm -hmm. and with people at different universities. So I think more consistency in university support. Yeah. And there's been some really alarming reports over the last few years, sort of um, suicide spikes at university, and sort of the level of sort of link up between services at universities, the level of oversight. And I think there's a sense that we we let our, our young people loose. You know, my students who've just come out of sixth form and, and they're sort of independent now, but they're very young still. We're very young at 18 and living away from home for the first time. I actually think there needs to be more of a sense that we're treating these not as not as adults who are out in the world but as a sort of 
not children, but as as young people who need more pastoral support than perhaps an adult who's moved to London in their mid-20s might need. Yeah, yeah, agreed. That's something I worry about when we send some of our, our more anxious students off to university, for instance, from yeah. school, like teach out yeah. you know how. Because I think the thing with me was, because I was, I was going to say, one of the other things that people had made a decision about me very, very early in life was that I was robust. And mm. therefore, this couldn't possibly be happening to me. Yeah. You come out of your home, and for the first time, you can actually see the house you grew up in really clearly because you don't live inside it. And that throws up issues depending on what sort of house you grew up in. Obviously, you have this new financial strain that you've never really had to deal with. I, I didn't come from a well-off family, but I certainly didn't have to deal with my own finances. Do you know what I mean? It was my mum who had to make sure that the electricity was kept on, you know, or my, my parents who had to make sure the electricity was, was kept on. And it just, yeah, it just gradually and slowly just overwhelmed me. And it was, yeah, maybe I was a bit Celia. Why could nobody notice me at that point? Why I think is... we're all, yeah, we're all a bit Celia, I would say. Yeah. Let's talk about book five. Can you talk about book five? Yeah, I can. I, I'm working on it quite slowly. I'm usually quite a fast writer, I would say, once I get going. But now I've got... Um, You've got a baby. Uh, yeah, <laughs> she's one and she's um, she's an angel. She's gorgeous, but she's uh, the enemy to my writing, I would say. Uh, so I'm still I'm trying to find the balance between writing and teaching and looking after her. And I will get there, but I haven't got there at the moment. So I, I'm, it's sort of a it's sort of simmering frustration all the time with myself that I'm not getting more done. But also, you know, I, I just don't have that much time. But anyway, I'm writing a novel set in a girls' boarding school in the 80s where the head mistress is absolutely obsessed with the Cold War. So they've got sort of nuclear fallout bunkers in the basement and they have to have nuclear drills. And it focuses on the friendship between two girls a new girl coming in from Scotland and her roommate who is initially pretty unpleasant to everyone um, although she has her reasons it's a not a particularly pleasant place to be but it's also this sort of incredibly erratic environment that's divorced from reality mm. in many ways so it's, a, it's kind of a comedy but it's focused on female friendship I think because they are gradually going to develop a friendship but it's absolutely mad boarding school that has pretty low fees because they barely pay the teachers and where parents send their daughters when they don't really know what to do with them but they feel like they probably have to go to school so I'm sort of working it out but I am enjoying myself oh I'm in I'm guessing you don't remember the Cold War really no I mean I was born at the end of the 80s and I remember in the 90s worrying about nuclear bombs but I'm pretty sure I must have been the only child in the 90s who was worried (laughs) about nuclear bombs I was quite an anxious child and I don't know where I got that from but I found a a diary entry when I was about about nine so that would be mid to late um, 90s saying I'm so worried that they're going to drop the bomb on us and there's going to be nuclear fallout but like who's they there's no real risk of it by (laughs) the late 90s so I don't know um, so no, I don't have any real experience of the Cold War. And I've sort of asked my parents about it. They sort of said, yeah, we were a bit worried from time to time. We're generally not that bothered. But I remember my maths teacher at school telling me once, um, you know, you'd go to school in the morning and you wouldn't know if you'd be coming home that night or not. And that made quite an impression on me. <laughs> As someone who can remember it, I mean, can remember the like, certainly the 80s, certainly the nuclear panic. I think it was the omnipresence of it because it was in art as well. Mm. Uh, you know everyone's playing out their anxieties through art and therefore you know you turned on the telly and there was some 
you know, either when the wind blows or... Have or you seen Threads? Threads, exactly I, that I was watched on. it recently. It's terrifying. It's so frightening. It's everywhere, even if you read Zeb for Zachariah, which is about, Oh, you know, I've also read that. Yeah, yeah that so, is So it was well. everywhere. It was literally mm. everywhere. Even if you didn't pay attention to the news, it permeated so many parts of culture, this sort of... This almost accepting idea that it was inevitable that it would happen at some point. And that's yeah, interesting. That 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 anxiety then sort of went almost immediately, but was replaced by I I think an environmental anxiety. I think I was always anxious about something when I was yeah. growing up. I was going to ask if, if your experience of worrying about nuclear bomb being dropped, if that's similar now to, for instance, my anxiety and probably most people's anxiety about climate change, the sort of sense of it's sort of omnipresent. You can't forget that climate change is taking place and there's a sense of inevitability about it. Yeah. And I find that I veer between being absolutely panicked and and terrified and then just not thinking about it for a while because I sort of repressed the idea. It is similar. And also it was something that I felt that there was this great, you know, decision. I, it's not a decision. Maybe you look at it as a decision when you're a kid, but, you know, do you want to survive this? And be one of the only people left, or do you want yeah. to be, be taken out in the in the great sort of? And I suppose there is an, an element with that of survivorism, this sort of scorched earth idea of you just being the only person left. But that's probably because yeah. they made us read terrifying books like Zed for Zachariah when we were about yeah, eleven. Or, and yeah, they made Threads, yeah. the most frightening film I've ever watched. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, we didn't watch that at school, but we did watch. No. <laughs> really not. We, we did watch When the Wind Blows at school. So yeah, you know. <laughs> I can't what, be bothered to lesson? do a lesson plan. I'm just going to roll yeah. the telly and make him watch something terrible. I understand the temptation there. <laughs> oh, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much, Rebecca. No, thank you. Standard issue for all women.